Hello and welcome to today's lecture for History uh, 256. This is Dr. Stuart Tully. Uh, hopefully everybody's doing okay. Remember, this is your last lecture before the test. So for Thursday's class, we're not going to be having the lectures. Uh, you'll be taking a test. The test is going to be on, oh, World War I, Roaring Twenties, Great Depression, and World War II. It's going to be about 50 questions. You'll do fine. Don't worry about it. So there we go. Uh, last class, we talked about uh, the actual fighting in World War II, kind of the, some of the social aspects of it. Uh, I believe we ended up talking about that Japanese internment camp. Uh, today, we're talking mainly just about the fighting. I swear to you, we're actually talking about mainly about the fighting, so I'll give you a second to go on to Moodle and get the PowerPoint for today. So, all right. Everybody's got it? Let's go. Okay, first you will see the Corgi picture of the day, and I tell you, it's a cute one. Uh, that's her just sitting on the couch, uh, chewing her little rawhide donut. She's having a really good day. Oh, she's a very happy puppy. So, go over one slide. The drive towards Berlin. Here's the deal. Uh, we're still talking mid-1942 at this point. Uh, the U.S. has mobilized. We've got everything, we got everything straight. We got the army trained. We got our production humming. We got all the machines and tanks and stuff we might need. And the main goal, as I've said a million times again, was uh, was Germany, was Hitler. The U.S. and Germany really want to beat Hitler, but they have to be smart about it. Okay, They know that beating Hitler is the most important part here. But if they rush for headlong into something, it's not that great. Uh, Russia, in the meantime, is like, hey guys, second front, anytime. Anytime you want it, it's fine. Uh, we don't mind losing millions of people, but we don't want to lose millions of people if we don't have to. Remember, the Russians have pretty much been fighting Hitler by themselves. And they're really keen on getting a second front, pretty much just anything to help them out. They need support. They need something. Like I said, Stalin is okay with having millions of people die, only if they have to. Stalin is a crazy person. But he's not totally crazy. I mean, he's pretty close to totally crazy. But he is well aware that, you know, millions of his people are going to die if the British and the Russians kind of slow their roll. However, Britain is not keen on fighting Germany immediately. Uh, the, the main goal is to go to France first, then go to Germany. There's very little talk of going to Germany first. Uh, there is some. We're going to get to that when we get to D-Day. But remember, Hitler's got the better land army. And Britain has not really engaged with Hitler all that much at first. Remember, they had the retreat at Dunkirk. And so Britain's thinking, hey, if we go straight to France and the Germans brought, drive us back, it's pretty much the only way they could possibly lose the war. It's actually for Britain's benefit to delay the attack directly on the Germans. Because if they do it quick, they can be wiped out. Britain doesn't have the production capacity of the U.S., Likewise, Britain has a pretty high population, but they don't have the population centers like the U.S. does, so they don't have as large of an army to draw upon. Also, FDR has political implications for this, too. Midterm elections are coming up. All right, it is 1942. The Republicans do get most of the seats uh, in this time period, but FDR does not want a ton of loss of life. The idea that if there's a huge loss of life, huge loss of life before a midterm election, it doesn't bode well for his party. Like I said, ultimately he doesn't do very well in the midterm election. But that's something fairly normal. Generally, presidents are not going to do major military operations right before an election. Uh, people dying is not generally good for a president. And so FDR decides to go for what he calls the soft underbelly. Of, of this whole thing, North Africa. Uh, this is the easy stuff, all right? This is like, hey, I've got a million things to do, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross off the, the easiest thing on the list, maybe like sharpening a pencil or something. Uh, Italy is theoretically around North Africa. Um, Germany is too, but it's, supposedly it's mainly, North, uh, it's mainly Italy. Everybody knows they're weak. Yes, I'm keenly aware that Rommel is around. Somebody right here is like, no, no, Rommel, he's the Desert Fox. He's the best, Germany, he's the best general Germany has. Yes, yes, he is. But that being said, as a whole, the, the hold that the Axis have over North Africa is never the strongest. 
And the invasion starts on November 8th, 1942. Um, that should not be that big of a surprise. That's right around Election Day. Uh, FDR is holding this off as long as he can. But in November 1942, the U.S. has finally started to fight the Axis immediately. Uh, their first landings are in Morocco and um, Algeria. Morocco and Algeria, if you can look at the map. Oh, yeah, go over one slide. You'll see the maps. The U.S. is, is coming in from the you know northwest part of, northwest, of northern Africa. Uh, this goes on for pretty much the winter of 1943, early spring of 1943. Uh, there are quite a bit of battles here. I'm not going to get too much into these battles. Uh, if this was a World War II class, I would, but it's not. It's just a, 19, it's a history class, so it's a U.S. history survey, so... But I do want you to know is that on May 12, 1943, Italy and their German allies surrender. They do surrender by May of 1943. This is taking out Northern Africa out of the equation. Uh, Germany loses some people. Italy loses some people. It's not the best staging ground, but still, it's pretty, it's pretty solid. Um, what is something that, interesting that happens in this time period is if you go over one slide, you'll see that Winston Churchill and FDR do meet. Uh, to talk strategy in Casablanca, which is a city in Morocco. You will, if you go back to the map, you'll see it. Uh, Casablanca is right there. Uh, they make a, actually, my favorite movie of all time is Casablanca. Uh, they talk strategy this time. They talk strategy. They talk about what their next goal is going to be. Stalin sits this one out because Stalin can't make it. Uh, Stalin is too busy fighting the actual Germans, not piddling around North Africa. Now, there is a story about this meeting, which is kind of funny. It might be apocryphal. Uh, however, remember, Franco is in charge of Spain. Franco is allies with you know, Mussolini and the Axis powers and well, Hitler, too. And so, basically, Franco sends a message to Germany saying, Hey, FDR and Winston Churchill, they're going to meet at Casablanca. Now, if you know Spanish... Casablanca literally means White House. So whenever Hitler gets a message, oh, hey, you know, they're going to meet at the White House, well, there's no way we can attack them. Now, is this a real story? It's probably apocryphal, but it's a fun one to talk in about anyway. What isn't fun to talk about is just how bad things are going for the Russians. Remember, the U.S. And, and Britain are kind of piddling around North Africa. I'm not, I'm not downplaying the importance of North Africa, are downplaying the you know the the power or the strength or the the bravery of the soldiers who fought there, but it's nothing compared to what's going on in Russia. Uh, to put things in perspective, here's a number I want you to know. All right, in the year 1943, in 1943 the Americans and British combined lost about 60,000 troops. About 60,000 troops <clears throat> were lost over the course of 1943 for the U.S. and Britain combined. In that same year, in 1943, Russia lost 2 million. 2 million compared to 60,000. I don't have my calculator out, but if I did, I could tell you that's not a very uh, good percentage number right there. It's a fraction. It's a fraction of the number of troops that Russia lost. And Stalin is justifiably a little miffed about it. You know... They claim to be allies. They claim to be allies. They claim that they're in this to fight Germany together. And yet Russia's doing most of the fighting by itself. They're losing most of the people. Uh, just keep that in the back of your head for when we get into the Cold War. Now, at the Casablanca conference, Churchill and FDR decide that the next target is going to be Italy. Which doesn't make Russia all that happy. They want a honest-to-God invasion against Germany. Italy is like the, you know, stupid younger brother. It's, it, they're not the real threat. Yes, they're an Axis power. Yes, it's mainland Europe. Stalin is not happy about this. Man, I wish I was in person because I have this whole little routine I do, but I can't do it over podcasts. It just doesn't sound right. Stalin's upset, so in exchange, the uh, Britain and America promised Stalin a bunch of supplies. Now, the supplies is going to become important when we get into the Cold War too. I remember Stalin had gone all scorched earth on everything, and Eastern Russia doesn't have the most production. Western Russia does. So Stalin desperately needs supplies. Desperately, desperately needs supplies. 
And Stalin is happy for the supplies. He does not begrudge the supplies. But what he does want is soldiers. He'd rather have actual soldiers fighting the Nazis, not Mussolini's goons in Italy. Now, FDR also announces that the war is going to be over only when all the Axis powers surrender unconditionally. Stalin is worried that they're going to negotiate separately. Stalin is very concerned that the U.S. and Britain are going to, like, beat all these countries that he's been fighting by himself, particularly he's scared about Germany. He's afraid that, you know, he's going to weaken up Germany so much up to the point that whenever the Americans and British actually do fight Germany directly, they can take him out so quickly because Russia's weakened it, and Russia's not going to have a chance at the uh, negotiating table. However, FDR now makes it so the countries have to surrender en masse, which ironically allows Stalin to gobble up a bunch of countries with the Cold War. But like I said, Cold War's coming up. So now it's time to go for Italy. Italy is now, now, the, now the goal. Uh, the Allies start to bomb Italy on July 10th, 1943. So about two months after uh, they get out of North Africa, they go to Italy. As you can see from the map, if you go back up again, Italy's not too far from North Africa. That's all I want you to know about. Uh, two weeks after the bombing starts, something really crazy happens. And this is something that seems like it's out of a bad movie. Like, if you heard this, if you saw this in a movie, you'd be like, this is unrealistic, this is crazy. But after two weeks of the bombardment, the king of Italy, remember King Emmanuel III, who you probably forgot about, dismisses Mussolini and has him arrested, which ends about 20 years of Mussolini's rule. Which is crazy. I bet you forgot that Italy had a king. You're like, wait, Italy has a king? Yeah, Italy has a king. And he actually arrests Mussolini, throws him in jail. Make things even crazier, he says, hey, I'm willing to switch sides. I'm willing to switch sides from the Axis powers to the, to the Allies. Italy's doing it again. It's another world war. Italy is switching sides midway through. Now, this confuses the ever-living hell out of everybody. Because in this confusion, Italy enters into negotiation with the U.S. And the negotiations go on for a while, a couple months, about one or two months. And the U.S. is really not believing what all they're hearing. They're like, wait, you're the king of Italy. King Emmanuel's like, yeah, I am. And America's like, you have power? He's like, yeah, sure I do. I even arrested Mussolini. To which America's like, you just arrested Mussolini? You could have done that, like, literally 20 years ago, but now you arrest him. And during all this confusion, the U.S. is very confused. This, they're super confused. Uh, this is where it gets out, like, something out of a movie. Uh, Mussolini, who's in jail, gets broken out of jail by the Nazis. The Nazis, the Germans, come in. They break Mussolini out of jail. They fly him over to northern Italy. He reestablishes his own government, which is pretty much a puppet state for the Allies. Uh, sorry, for the Axis. And, and King Emmanuel's like, guys, y'all had y'all's chance. To which America's like, I am really confused now. So if, you, if you're confused too, let me, let me say it basically. I try to be a little more dramatic. King of Italy, who is a thing, arrests Mussolini, puts him in jail. Nazis break him out like something out of Captain America or a bad Marvel movie. And then Mussolini comes back into power, makes a puppet state for the Nazis in northern Italy. So the U.S. is really confused. Uh, they keep fighting in Italy. Uh, they ultimately do liberate Rome on June 4th, 1944, but uh, two days after that, nobody cares about it. So the, the U.S. has taken out Italy. Uh, Mussolini does die about a year later. Oh, crap. Spoiler, but whatever. That's not too big of a spoiler. In the late fall of 43, though, something does happen which is more important. If you go down one picture, you will see three dudes together. You will see uh, Joseph Stalin, Franklin Roosevelt, and Churchill. Churchill looks not very happy to be with Stalin, but they actually do meet for the first time. In the fall of 1943, late fall, Churchill, FDR, and Stalin finally have their first face-to-face -face meeting. Basically, the Western Front, uh, sorry, the Eastern Front is gone decently enough for Stalin. Uh, Stalingrad had already occurred. Uh, Stalingrad is a, it's a pretty, it's basically the furthest part of the German advance into Russia. Uh, Stalingrad is a city that was literally named after Stalin. And Stalin was not going to let anybody take over Stalingrad. I mean, it's, I mean like, for instance, if, if there is a place called Tullytown, I would defend Tullytown to the death because it's my namesake. 
Uh, it happens in the winter of uh, of uh, forty two, early forty three. Uh, basically, you get some of the most brutal, like block by block, urban warfare in human history. It's almost something like out of World War One, where basically both sides are trapped in this one city. There's no supplies. They just like it's it's brutal. There's uh, there's a movie that came out when I was like a senior in high school called Enemy of the Gates. It's a fictionalized account of a sniper duel that happened between uh, Vasily Zaitsev, who's a real Russian super sniper, and some German guy they made up. Um, that's not real. What is real is that Stalingrad was brutal, but what you do need to know about Stalingrad is that that is where the Russians turn back the German advance. So Stalin's actually winning, albeit very slowly, against the Germans, and they decide they need to meet. They do meet in Tehran. Uh, Tehran is the capital of Iran. Uh, they make all sorts of promises to each other. It was mainly just a chance for them to meet each other in person. Uh, the U.S. and England assure Stalin that a second front is going to happen. And also, after the war, they're going to create the United Nations, and Russia will be a member. Remember, uh, Stalin thinks, possibly rightfully so, that Russia, sorry, that America and Britain are keeping Russia out of the loop. That, you know, Britain and America are the super secret best friends, and he's just the third wheel that they're trying to get to, like, kill everybody. Uh, that's not too far from the truth, actually. Uh, for his part, Stalin declares the... Uh, sorry. Boop. Uh, Stalin promises that he would declare war on Japan once things settle down enough for Russia to do this. Uh, this has been a source of contention for the Americans and the Russians. Uh, the Russians have been complaining that uh, the Americans are not helping fight Germany. Likewise, the Russian, uh, the Americans are complaining that the Russians have not been trying to fight Japan. If you look at a map, Russia and Japan are pretty close together. Likewise, Russia and Japan have had wars before. They had the Russo-Japanese War, not that much longer before. Now, after this conference, and there's all sorts of agreements, so the main agreement is... The U.S. and Britain are going to declare war on Germany very soon, and after the war, they will form the U.N., and Russia can be a member. In exchange, Russia says we are going to declare war on Japan as soon as we can, as soon as we, things settle down with Germany. Now, after this meeting, FDR tells Churchill, I don't, tote, I don't trust Stalin, like, at all. Like, at all at all. Um, FDR is very upfront with the idea that he doesn't trust Stalin, he thinks Stalin's going to renege on all of his promises. Uh, he, he thinks he's, he's wary of this entire thing. That being said though, said, though, we are building up for the second front. We're building up for the second front, the actual invasion of, of Europe, of real Europe, of the Nazis. Basically, when is Russia going to get some relief? It does happen on D-Day. D-Day is June 6, 1944. Uh, fun personal story about me. My wedding day is June 6, not 1944, not that old. But uh, June 6th was indeed, was my wedding day. It was my wedding day, and it is my anniversary. Um, I picked June 6th because I knew I would always remember it. Actually, that's a story I tell people. The real reason I picked it is because my parents would be able to come. Uh, normally, they spend their summers in Montana, but they were able to come to my wedding on June 6th. But yes, I'm so big of a history nerd that my wedding day is June 6th, D-Day. <laughs> now, D-Day happens in Normandy, France. Uh, Normandy, France is actually not where the Germans think it's going to be. They think it's going to be the Pont de Calais, which is the shortest point between England and France. If you look at a map of England and France, actually, that's actually where the English Channel is. Um, well, sorry, the, the Channel. The English Channel is the entire body of water. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the train in between England and France is at Pont de Calais. Uh, Normandy is a little bit to the west of that. It's quite a bit to the west of it. Uh, the Germans are pretty sure it's going to be at the Pont de Calais. Uh, that's not where it is. It's in Normandy, France. Now, weirdly enough, I will say this, Rommel is there. Uh, the German general Rommel was in charge of the Atlantic Front. That is what the uh, Germans call their defenses, uh, basically surrounding the entirety of, of, uh, of Europe. Uh, the Germans claim that their wall, their, their defenses go from Spain all the way to Norway and it's impenetrable. The problem is they don't have the troops to have everywhere, everywhere manned strongly. And then, so they just kind of cluster in some places, but they're not clustered strong enough. 
Remember, the Germans are fighting a two... Well, they're fighting a one-and-a-half front war. They're mainly fighting with Russia. That's taking most of their supplies. So most of their units, most of their supplies are going to the Eastern Front with Russia. So they're able to put some stuff in the Western Front, in the Atlantic Wall. Hitler claims it's impenetrable. It's not. In fact, about a week before the invasion, uh, Rommel does indeed go to the beaches of Normandy. And he observes them, and he's like, you know, y'all need to really make the defenses better. But for actual D-Day, Rommel is not there. Rommel actually goes to Berlin. It's his wife's birthday. By the time he gets back, the invasion has already occurred. And actually, when he finds out the attack did occur, he's not very happy. Uh, now, the invasion itself is led for the Allies by Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, it's a name you should know because he later becomes president. Uh, he really comes... He becomes the main general during this time period. Uh, he was not high on the general list at the beginning of the war. He does some stuff. He does the Italian invasion, uh, the North African invasion. D doesn't do the greatest job. I'm not going to lie with that. Uh, for instance, one of the people he collaborated with was a was a Nazi. Uh, sorry, a French admiral who was doing stuff with the Nazis. Thankfully, that admiral died, so it doesn't really smirch Eisenhower's character. However, Eisenhower is the general placed in charge of the invasion. Uh, the Allies... Okay. A little bit of background about me. Um, I do the Normandy invasion... Sorry. I do the Normandy trip with the National World War II Museum. And so, uh, you know, I spend summers in Normandy and little town of Bayou, which is a really cute little town. And so I know a lot of junk about this. So I'm going to try to condense this quite a bit. But the Germans know a second front is coming. They know the not they you in warfare you can't hide truth movements like that. The Nazis have spies in England. They know that people are being militarized. You know the soldiers don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but they know. I mean, this is the largest invasion in human history. This is the largest movement of troops in human history. About three hundred and seventy thousand troops are involved in this. You can't hide that. You know it, it might be you know let's let's round up to four hundred thousand troops. But you also have support staff. You also have, like, the fact that all these ships and supplies are all coming together. That's hard to hide. And so the Germans know this is coming. They don't know where, and they don't know who. Uh, they're expecting it's probably going to be Patton. In fact, there's a, there's a great feign invasion that the Americans do where they make it look like Patton is in charge of a much larger force that's going to attack Pont de Calais, which is, the like I said, the shortest point between England and France. So there, there's all sorts of, of feigns and fake-outs and basically trying to confuse the enemy. Now, the invasion itself... If you, uh, sorry, Eisenhower is in charge of this for the, for the Allies. Um, this is pretty much his, his grand moment. Um, he doesn't actually be... He's not involved on the ground. Generally, your high-up generals are not involved like the day of. They're usually staying back. He actually spends most of the war in London. But there, here he is talking to the paratroopers before the battle... If you go over one more picture, that is um, Utah Beach. That is not Omaha Beach. That is Utah Beach. That's one of the ones where it went really well. Uh, there's five beaches. Oh, God, Tully, don't, don't go deep. Fine. There's five beaches. They divided up between the British, the Americans, and the uh, Canadians, actually. The Canadians take over beach. Um, the Canadians are actually all volunteers, so go Canada. Uh, the U.S. takes Omaha and Utah. Utah is pretty easy. Uh, Omaha is the one you've heard about. That's the Saving Private Ryan Beach. That's the one that goes kind of hard. Uh, that one actually has the highest loss of life for the Americans. But in general, it's not a very high loss of life. Only about 5,000 Allied troops are killed, most of which in the first assault. Um, it's not that bad. For, for an invasion, it's not that bad. When you're dealing with 370,000 troops and you only lose about 5,000, that's pretty good. And ironically... Hitler is very happy when this happens. Uh, Hitler is ecstatic about this because, remember, he's under the impression that as soon as the British come on European soil, they've lost because the Germans can knock them out pretty quick. However, he's been losing against Russia. He's been losing supplies, using troops. So Hitler is pretty happy about this. You know who's really happy about this? The French. Uh, the French are ecstatic about this. Uh, Charles de Gaulle, who he was a French general, he's kind of the de facto French leader in exile. He hadn't really been elected anything, but he kind of appointed himself. 
About a week after the invasion, he goes to the little town of Bayou to give a speech, saying, hey, we've liberated ourselves. He makes us all a French thing. The French people are very happy about it. Um, although D-Day is... Oh, sorry, sorry. Another person who's even more happy about this is Stalin. Stalin's way more excited about this because the Allies are actually giving him the second front. Remember, it's been about two years. Millions upon millions of Russian soldiers have died because Britain and, and, uh, and America have been dragging their feet. But now that they're actually on European soil, Stalin is ecstatic. He has his own offensive, which is way bigger and kills way more Germans than D-Day. Now, after D-Day, the Americans start kind of going through France. Uh, you have the Battle of the Bocage, which is way more loss of life than D-Day. That's when you're going through all these little farms and hedgerows in Normandy, France. Which, by the way, let me talk about Normandy for a second. If you ever get the chance to go, I highly recommend it. Um, for you, you know, non-seniors, which should be everybody in this class is not a senior, uh, we have scholarship opportunities to go to the Normandy um, Academy with the World War II Museum. You get college credit. If you have younger siblings or cousins in high school, we have a high school program. I do the high school program. It's a great opportunity. You get to see all sorts of beautiful landscape. You get to see all sorts of great battle sites. It's really inspiring to see some of the, um, you know, the graveyards and things like that. Uh, you get to meet some, uh, I mean, for instance, there's Colette. She's 90-plus years old. She's uh, She was in the French Resistance when she was 14. She's amazing. But the landscape is beautiful. It is just a gorgeous area. Some of the best apple juice you're ever going to get in your entire life. Uh, there is, like, apple, hard apple ciders. I don't, I don't drink alcohol, so I didn't partake in that. But they have really good cheese. I mean, just some of the best food, some of the nicest, sweetest people. Uh, go to Normandy if you ever get the chance. But you'll go to the Bocage, and you'll see these giant hedges. And when you think hedges, don't think like, oh, yeah, like little hedges in my, you know, my aunt's garden, you know, three, four feet high. These are like 10 feet high. These are 10, 12 feet high hedges. And it's pretty much like that's what they use in some of these French farmers use instead of like fences or gates or anything. They use hedges so the cows can't go through them. And it's pretty much like every time you go through a hedge, if you're a soldier, it's another chance for a German machine gun nest or a tank or something. And it gets very tedious. Now, the Germans have a chance of launching an offensive. They don't. There's actually a pincer attack that happens instead. I'm not going to get too much into this. Uh, just talk to me sometime about Normandy. But things are going pretty good. The, once the um, Americans get their footing, they're able to speed through France pretty quick. Uh, on August 25th, 1944... Paris is liberated. It's the happiest day in French history. Oh my goodness. If you look at some of these pictures, you will see that little dude. That's when uh, that's a famous picture of when the Germans take over Paris. However, August 25th, if you go over, you'll see the, uh, the Allies marching uh, down the Champs-Élysées. Uh, also, hey, fun fact. Oh yeah, there's the Arche de la Triomphe. But does anybody know what Champs-Élysées means in uh, French? I just learned this because I'm learning French. It means Elysian Fields. Never knew that. Never knew that it means Elysian Fields. But it means Elysian Fields. Uh, the French people are very happy about this. If you go over one so picture, you'll see one of these parades of the happy French people just showing their, their sheer unbridled joy of being liberated. Uh, I do want you to notice, though, in the pictures, notice they're not really holding American flags. You're seeing Viva de Gaulle. Viva la Republic. Uh, there's... De Gaulle does a really good job of making it sound like the French have liberated themselves. And this is important for the Allies. Uh, there is no serious talk, but there is fear that maybe Britain or America is going to take over France. You know, that's uh, not a very strong fear. But they want, to make the, they want to let the French people be sure that they're not trading one occupier for another. Also, if you go over one more picture, you will see a French lady being very affectionate to one of the American tanks. That's not unusual. Um, apparently, the, the, the French were very happy with the Americans. Um, once we get take over France, it's pretty quick. By mid-September, pretty much all of France is liberated, uh, as is Belgium. And it looks too easy. I mean, I hate to say warfare is easy, but the reason why America is able to go so quick through France... It's because Stalin has been pretty much fighting the war by himself. Uh, Stalin had been fighting the Germans pretty much by himself for over two years. Millions of lives lost. And that's why the Americans are able to plow through France pretty quickly. 
However, the hard part is about to happen because Germany is looming. Yes, the Germans were willing to fight fairly hard in France and, and Belgium, but ultimately not as strong as they would in Germany. And so Germany is looming. The U.S. is at the verge. It's a pincer attack. It looks like the Russians and the Americans and British are about to close in on Germany. But we're going to put that on the back burner for a second. Let's go to the Pacific War. Now, the Pacific War is a different war altogether. Unlike Europe, which is mainly the Russians fighting the Germans with the Americans fighting the Italians in North Africa, Britain's involved too, the Pacific theater is solely American and Japanese. Like, nobody else is really participating. The Nazis don't have anybody in the Pacific. Uh, the Italians have nobody in the Pacific. The British have nobody in the Pacific. The Russians should have people in the Pacific, but they don't. They're fighting their own war. This is just America and Japanese. And I'm going to be condensing quite a bit here, because the main tactic, and by main tactic, I mean the only tactic, is island hopping. That's what the Americans call it. The Americans call it island hopping. Uh, pretty much the way the war in the Pacific worked is the U.S. would find an island that the Japanese had an airbase on. They would start bombing said island. They would send in the Marines after the island had been bombed and weakened. The Marines would come in. They would fight the Japanese. They would be very brutal to the Japanese. The Japanese would be pretty brutal to them. And then they would take over the island, maybe set up an airbase there, and then go on to the next island. This is long. This is tedious. And the thing I want you to realize, it is brutal on supplies and troops. This is a very, very long type of warfare. The fact that the Pacific Ocean is so large and land is so little, you're so dependent upon carrier groups. But although carrier groups can have like rather large you know, fuel reserves and rather large uh, supplies and food, they're not infinite. It's a lot easier to supply things on land than it is on a boat or in the air. So supply lines are just vitally important in the Pacific. And it makes it a much longer war. The, you know, you're, you're getting island after island. And it's very long, very tedious for the Japanese and the Americans. Because remember, the Japanese aren't really fighting a second front. This is their front. But they're also limited by resources, too. It's hard for them to get resources from Japan to these little islands. And Japanese resistance is rarely, rarely, rarely weak. The Japanese are known not to surrender. Uh, the Japanese have been told, like, basically, if you surrender, you're dishonoring your family, you're, you know, you're, you're weak. It's more valiant to fight to the last man, even though death is almost assured. This, in turn, made the Americans less likely to take Japanese soldiers. It also made using more brutal tactics common. This is on both sides. I'm not saying one side did it more than the other. I'm just saying it is warfare, but the Pacific War is exceptionally brutal, using things like flamethrowers and stuff against each other. Now, judging by the propaganda in the Pacific, there are definitely elements of a race war. Now, that's... They really... It's, it's not unusual to demonize your enemy somewhat during a war, but some of the vitriol you see there in the War of the Pacific is quite large. Uh, for instance, go over one slide. You will see, uh, this is some American anti-Japanese uh, propaganda. Uh, made in Japan, caught in the Pacific, tanned in the U.S. It's the idea that they're skinning individuals. Uh, here lies the pelt of a, a Jap who mistook a yank for a nap. He never deserved to be preserved, so he kept his hide in his cap. It's quite brutal. It's quite brutal. Likewise, if you go more, here's it's Superman even. It's Superman saying you can slap a Jap with war bonds and stamps. I mean, we're even saying this to kids. You know, we're really, really degrading this. Uh, even in the Japanese propaganda against the Americans, if you look, if you go over one more, you will see uh, Japanese propaganda against the United States. Uh, the the U.S. propaganda against the Japanese generally show the Japanese as things like insects or vermin. Uh, the Japanese propaganda against the U.S. typically showed Americans as oni, which is a type of demon, like a like an ogre or a troll. They're they're large. They're very, very strong, very very powerful. That sort of thing. Uh, here's another one. I'm not going to go too deep in this one, but I do want you to see. Here's another one. This is one's for uh, anti-American graffiti uh, propaganda that the Japanese are dropping in Australia. 
The implication being the Americans want the Australians to get killed so they can rape Australian women. Uh, another one, this is a good one of the representation of the Oni, see FDR with the horns. Uh, the idea that basically FDR is doing this war for money. Kind of a common accusation going on. But as the war in the Pacific went on, uh, sorry, if you go over one more, uh, that's about the Philippines. Just have a good propaganda selection. But as the war goes on, Japan gets increasingly desperate. And in this desperation, they go back to ancient antiquity. Okay, let's go back to ancient antiquity. Let's talk about the Mongols. Now, if you remember the Mongols, you know, Genghis Khan, this isn't Genghis Khan, this one is Kublai Khan, the greatest land army the, the world had ever seen. Their, their horses, their horse archers are able to conquer pretty much all of Asia, get into Europe. There is a plan for them to take over Japan. This is hollowed antiquity, you know, a thousand years before or whatever. And so they made a great fleet to invade Japan. But in the space of coming over, a tidal wave took out this fleet. And it was said in Japan that the tidal wave protected the island of Japan from Ford invaders. This divine wind, I want you to remember that phrase, divine wind is what protects Japan from outside. Now, the Japanese word for divine wind is kamikaze. And as the war went on, the first kamikazes happened. A kamikaze, simply put, is a suicide plane mission. What they would do, if you go over one, you will see a picture of kamikaze pilots. This is the day before their mission. Um, the dog survived. You know what? I'm going to tell you that. The dog's still around. Um, usually I say the dog died. Nope, the dog's happy. The dog's still around. He's a very old dog, but he's, he's alive today. That's a joke, sadly. Kamikazes, the way it worked, is they're telling their, you know, they don't get the best pilots to be kamikazes. You either pick those who are very young or very old, and typically they're very young. Uh, your best pilots do not become kamikazes because they're too valuable. Basically, you give these people enough training. Some of these guys are, I think some of the earliest kamikazes are like 14, 15 years old. And it was steeped in ritual. It was steeped in ritual, you know, the day before their mission, they're told that, you know, their, their families will be honored, uh, their names are going to be always remembered, their families will be taken care of, uh, they have special meals, if you can see, they, they shave their head, they put on the, divine, you know, the, the rising sun headband around their head, uh, go over one more, you'll see they're like, you know, schoolgirls with the cherry blossoms. It's so steeped in ritual. They say make it so religious because this is a move of desperation. Okay? You don't do kamikazes whenever you're winning. The idea being that they're going to send a plane loaded with explosives. They don't let them go by themselves. You always have to have somebody to make sure you go through with it. They basically have enough fuel for a one-way trip, slam into the side of a boat, and it's just simple arithmetic. Yes, the pilot dies, but you might kill several sailors. You might even sink a boat. And if you sink a boat, that's, that's ton. It's just, it's, it's the worst arithmetic of all time. And as this starts happening, you see the war in the Pacific is becoming increasingly desperate. It's becoming increasingly violent. And that it's not going to be quick. The U.S. is running ramshod through Europe pretty quick. It's not happening in America. But also, it's 1944. It's 1944 by this point, and it's an election year. Now, the election of 1944, uh, the Republican nominee is Thomas Dewey. Uh, Thomas Dewey is a former district attorney. He's a governor of New York. If you go over one picture, you'll see a picture of Thomas Dewey. There he is. Um, he is he's got a really good mustache. I really like his mustache. Dewey's going to run a couple times. Also, I just noticed this. His wife is wearing an actual fox fur. Like, there is feet on that. Wow, that's fancy. Anywho, Thomas Dewey's Republican. Um, this is the same old tactic that Vindel Vilke used. Uh, FDR is old and tired. You know, Dewey is a Republican. He doesn't really criticize FDR for the war effort. He doesn't criticize FDR for pretty much anything. It's for the fact that he's old and he's tired. Uh, FDR is indeed old and tired. He's also sick. He doesn't realize how sick. He doesn't even bother campaigning. There's no real talk of FDR campaigning. He's like, yo, American public, you know what you're getting. It's me. It's a fourth term. He's like, I've been around for a while. Let me do this. 
something that does happen, though, is that he does have to change his vice president. His vice president is now a man by the name of Harry Truman, who we'll talk about right now. Uh, Harry Truman is a Southern Democrat. He's a Southern Democrat. He's from Kansas City, Missouri. Um, he's actually, well, we'll talk about Truman more later. He's a, no, yeah, sorry, I'll talk about him now. Uh, Truman is actually our poorest president. Uh, he has a distinction of being our poorest president. Very decent guy, lower class guy, working class. Um, he opened up a haberdashery about 20 years before he was vice president. It went out of business. He he failed on it badly. Uh, he didn't pay off the debt for that haberdashery until like a year or two before he became vice president. Uh, he was senator from Missouri. He is picked by FDR to kind of shore up his support in the South. Uh, remember, most of the South is Democrats. Most of the Democrats are in the South. FDR is not a Southern Democrat, and a lot of Democrats are upset with what he's doing. They think they're making the government too big. And so FDR pick, takes on Truman because Truman is a Southern Democrat. Now, if you go over one, you'll see how Dewey responds to this. There are rumors that Truman is a Southern Democrat and he is a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Remember, the Klan came about in the 20s. If you look at this, uh, you know, this, this little political ad, you know, I would very be happy to run with Truman. He'll bring real, real strength through the ticket. And Dewey is telling African Americans, hey, this Truman guy is a Klansman. Now, here's where it gets awkward. Truman is not currently a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but he was a member of the Klan for about a month in the 20s, about a week in the 20s. Um, he goes to one meeting. He never pays dues, mainly because he finds out fairly early on the Klan does not like Jewish people. And his political patron, his political benefactor, is a Jewish person. He joins because he thinks it's good for politics. Remember, it's the 1920s. The Klan says it's a good pro-America organization. Uh, Truman is not a strong individual in of himself. He's a machine guy. He's a machine politician guy. Uh, there's a machine in Kansas City that is running things for him. Uh, if you look at some more of these ads, I want you to finish the job. Uh, Roger and vote Democrat for lasting peace and security. Truman is not really kept in the loop on anything. Um, it's not that FDR distrusts Truman. He just doesn't know Truman. Truman doesn't know too much what's going on in the war. He's been senator for a short while. It's a very meteoric rise. Like, pretty much Truman is senator. He's not a very distinguished as a senator, but he does okay as a senator from Missouri. And now he's vice president. If you cover one picture, you'll see what Truman mainly does as vice president. Um... Raise money for war bonds. Play the piano with bombshells sitting on the top of it. I think it's a funny picture. And Truman is the vice presidential nominee. Uh, FDR wins this one. I, I do need to say this quick. FDR wins this one in the landslide. However, he is not president very long, but we're going to talk about that in a second. What you do need to know about is that the U.S. and Russia are now talking more seriously about combining military fronts. It's gotten to the point. You know, America and Britain have taken over France and, and Belgium. They're on Germany's western border. Russia has been kicking butt Germany. They've been kicking them out of Russia. They've gotten to the Germans' eastern border. And there's an element of the race to Berlin. Who is going to be the first one to get to Berlin? Because the idea is whoever captures Berlin, whoever gets Hitler, can really set the precedent for the negotiations. Germany has been the main goal for all of World War II. Germany is the most important country. And, who, and basically, whoever gets Hitler is going to get the chance to really set the terms of the peace talks. Now, Churchill's afraid that Stalin is going to turn everything communist. Churchill is afraid that Stalin is going to take all this territory for himself. And FDR is kind of fearful, too. FDR really wants to take out Berlin, and he tells Eisenhower... How many people are going to die if we take Berlin? Run the numbers. How many, how many casualties are we looking at is if we take Berlin? Eisenhower runs the numbers. And uh, Eisenhower finds out that it's going to cost about 100,000 American lives to take Berlin. To which, to which Eisenhower's like, nope, we're not doing that. Uh, Stalin can have it. We'll take out the factories in Western, Ber in Western Germany. Uh, Western Germany is their main industrial centers, uh, like Essen and stuff like that. Um... So America decides we're going to go for the factories. Yeah, they can get Berlin, 
but we're going to go for the factories. That will give us our strength and leverage when we go to the war negotiations. However, they do need to meet for one more time. They have one final meet. And they decide to meet at Yalta, which, a resort, which is a resort on the Black Sea, uh, which is pretty much in Russian territory, in February of 1945. In February of 1945. Now, FDR wants two things here. FDR wants Russia to finally declare war on Japan. It's still a sticking point. Um, I'll give you a flash forward. I guarantee you whenever Russia declares war on Japan, you're going to laugh. You're going to laugh. Uh, he wants Russia to declare war on Japan, and he really wants to make, and secondly, he really wants to make this whole United Nations thing work to prevent a third world war. He is convinced, like everybody else, the what happened in the First World War at the Treaty of Versailles caused World War II. This is indeed accurate. Now, Churchill has one goal. Churchill's one goal is to make sure that World War I doesn't happen again, or a third world war, by making sure Germany isn't treated all that badly. Churchill's like, you know, making all those, um, making all those reparations, all those, you know, all the punishment on Germany is what caused Hitler to come to power. We need to make things a little bit nicer, a little bit better. He also wants France and Poland to be democratic. Um, he is convinced that Poland being democratic is what's going to save all of Europe. Uh, we're going to talk about that later, so don't worry about that. Uh, Stalin has one goal as well. Stalin's one goal is we suffer the most, we need the most stuff. He wants Russia to get the most stuff, most territory, most everything. Uh, in order for Russia to have security, he wants all their borders buffered. He wants as many buffers as possible. We're going to get into this much more extensively when I talk about the beginning of the Cold War. But just know that Russia doesn't want any future attacks. You know, they got drawn into this war because Germany attacked Poland, which borders Russia. Russia doesn't want a border with anything that could possibly have another war. He doesn't want any future attacks. He doesn't want them to border a non-communist. We're going to get into why he doesn't want to be around non-communists when we talk about the Cold War. Stalin wants to rebuild. He wants to repopulate. We're going to get into the numbers of what the Russians lost. It's abysmal. So in order to achieve this, Russia wants to keep all the land that they quote-unquote liberated. If Russia took over stuff, they get to have control over it. They either get to have direct control or set up a puppet government. Pretty much Eastern Europe. This is going to become the USSR, the little satellite Soviet states, when we get into the Cold War. So what agreements are made? There are several agreements made at Yalta. Oh yeah, if you go over one picture, you will see all three of them together for the last time. Notice how sick Roosevelt looks, because he looks really sick, because he is really sick. He is very, very sick. Now the agreements are made. Uh, number one, Germany is going to be split between the Allies. Uh, the West, the West parts of uh, Germany goes to the U.S. Basically, like you know, the industrial centers. England and France also get parts of West Germany. Russia gets East Germany. And because Berlin's so important, they're going to split it four ways. Now, as we get into the Cold War, it's going to really consolidate into two countries. But I want you to know at the beginning, they split it four ways: the country four ways, and Berlin four ways. Uh, Poland is an issue. Poland is an issue because it caused the war in the first place, also because it's so close to Russia. Um, England wants free elections. Stalin is not willing to do free elections because he's already taken it over. Uh, Stalin had already taken Poland by this time. He doesn't want free elections. And the Russians install a puppet government just for the time being. He says just for the time being we're going to have a puppet government. Once the war's over, once things settle down, once Hitler's out of the picture, we'll give over control. Uh, Poland doesn't get free elections until the late 80s, so <laughs> give you that's a spoiler. Uh, Russia also promises to declare war on Japan, but if it does declare war on Japan, it does not get to take over any territory. They don't get to keep any territory they take over, um, specifically Manchuria. The Russians have always wanted Manchuria. Uh, there is a fear that the Russians are going to take over Manchuria and keep it from the Chinese. Remember, China is our ally in all of this. China is our ally. Now, these details are secret. This is not known to the general public. And um, the reports show that the German, the, if the Germans were to surrender, the Japanese could hold out for another 18 months. 
without Russia, uh, if Russia doesn't declare war. And America does not want to have another 18-month war going on. But it's, seriously, if you look at a map of the world and see how close Russia and Japan are, it's mind-boggling. So even though Germany's going to be out of the picture, it looks like it's going to be a longer war with Japan, because island hopping is so tedious. So if you go over one, the collapse of Nazi Germany happens really quickly. Um, here, just go over one more. Okay. On April 12th, 1945, Roosevelt dies. Uh, Roosevelt was pretty sick. He'd been sick for a while. He dies of a cerebral hemorrhage. Uh, he was actually in Warm Springs. That's his, uh, that's his camp. That's his Camp David or whatever, as you will. His Mar-a-Lago, perhaps. That's his retreat, his private retreat. Um, he likes the hot springs because it, it's able, he's able to move his legs and junk because he has polio. Uh, he's sitting for a painting. He doesn't feel very well. He falls down. He collapses. He actually dies in the arms of his third mistress. Fun fact. Uh, with Roosevelt dead, this now makes Harry Truman uh, the president, which is, <laughs> which is surprising. <laughs> and Hitler's actually overjoyed when he hears about this. When Hitler hears about this, he feels maybe, just maybe, his luck has changed. He says maybe with FDR out of the picture, the Americans are going to, uh, you know, slack off a little bit. Um, this doesn't happen because two weeks after that, on April 25th, the Allies meet. Uh, the Americans and Russians finally combine fronts. They meet together in Germany. They're able to push together. They're, able to, they're outside Berlin. They actually do meet together. This is much mirth. There's dancing and singing. You know, the Russians finally feel that they have allies now. This seems really good for, um, really good for the allies, because it looks like we're about to take over Germany. Three days after that, just notice how quick everything happens. Three days after that, Mussolini is killed. Uh, Mussolini was trying to escape with his mistress. They're trying to flee Italy. They get caught at a train station. Uh, they get turned into human pinatas. You can see uh, there's Mussolini in the middle. There's his mistress to the right of him. Uh, they're buried. They're uh, sorry. They're not buried. They're they're pretty much held up as like basically don't do this in Italy. Italy is out of the picture. You know, Italy is completely gone. Uh, Hitler's really freaked out about this. And there's a race to Berlin pretty much going on. You know, are the Americans going to get it first or are the Russians going to get it first? Uh, Hitler does want the Americans to get it first. Uh, he thinks the Americans are going to treat him a little bit more nicely than the Russians were because, remember, he didn't directly betray America. He directly betrayed Stalin. He's terrified about what Stalin's going to do with him. Uh, Hitler hears about this. He's kind of freaked out. He's so freaked out that two days after Mussolini is killed, Hitler gets married. Uh, Hitler had been dating his girlfriend, Ava Braun, for quite a while. Um, yeah, yeah, Hitler had a girlfriend. Uh, this was not known to the German general public, but Hitler indeed had a girlfriend. Her name was Ava Braun. So just think, if you don't have a girlfriend, you're less desirable than Hitler. Ah, oh, okay, sorry, that's a joke. I'd say that every year. Uh, the day after Hitler gets married, he and his wife both commit suicide. Um, she takes cyanide, he takes a, um, he shoots himself. He shoots himself. Uh, their bodies are buried, are burned, and the ashes are scattered almost immediately, uh, mainly because he doesn't want Stalin to desecrate his corpse or anything like that. Uh, they say that Hit the only time Hitler cried throughout the entire war was the day before he committed suicide, whenever he tested out the cyanide capsule on his beloved dog, Blondie. Uh, Hitler had a German shepherd named Blondie, which he really liked, um, Hitler was convinced at the end that, you know, he was being betrayed by everybody around him. He thought maybe the cyanide was fake, so he gave the cyanide to his dog just to make sure it was real. When he saw that the cyanide was indeed real and his dog died, apparently that was the one time he cried. Likewise, Goebbels, who's been in Hitler's bunker for a while, too. Uh, this one's really sad. He has, he's got his children, and he and his wife, like, they kill all their children because they're like, we don't want, to live, we don't want our kids to live in a world without the Nazis and Hitler. This is pretty bad. Um, so Hitler is dead. His body is burned. Uh, the day, about two days after Hitler is killed, uh, Berlin falls to the Soviets. The Soviets do win the race to Berlin. Uh, the Nazis surrender on May 7th. On May 7th, the Nazis surrender. It's a little bit uh, anticlimactic, the fact that the Nazis surrender, mainly because... 
you know, Hitler's dead, and also they're discovering a huge humanitarian crisis. Uh, still, people are pretty happy about VE Day. As you can see, you can see people partying in the streets. They are happy about VE Day. However, there's a huge humanitarian crisis they discover, which kind of puts a damper on everything in Europe. And that's the Holocaust. Now, the Holocaust, I can't iterate this enough, is fairly unknown during the war to the general public. Uh, there have been bits and pieces and rumors and stuff about what's been going on in Germany to people of Jewish descent. Likewise, they know the German prisoners are kind of disappearing, but it's not until near the end of the war, once they start getting into Germany, that they see how bad it is. This is systematic and methodical. The Germans kill about 6 million Jews and around a million other, other undesirables. Uh, who are the undesirables? Uh, gypsies, homosexuals, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, oddly enough, uh, communists, uh, the physically impaired, mentally impaired, handicapped people. Uh, for, you know, there's Poles and stuff like that. There's, there's a lot of people who were killed. Now, it's not just Jews, even though Jews are the vast majority. This is methodical genocide. This is not just the heat of passion. This is cool. This is calculated. They keep records. They do, like, scientific experiments. Now, the Jewish leaders, even those in America, even Jewish American leaders are kind of hesitant to talk about how bad the Holocaust is during the war because they're afraid it would rise in anti-Semitism. Remember, there is anti-Semitism in America, and they're afraid that if they were to talk too much about it, it might cause sympathy to rise for Germany, weirdly enough. But once they see the scale of the Holocaust, once the American people see the scale of the Holocaust, they realize that, man, this is really bad. If you go through, you'll see some pictures of the victims. You know, they're about starving to death. You know, there's nothing but skin and bones. Pretty happy to be liberated. There's a picture of some of the corpse pileups. It's just awful. But the war is still going on. There's a war with Japan. And it's going longer and longer. Iwo Jima happens. You know Iwo Jima because of the famous picture. Uh, there you go. You can see them raising the flag on Iwo Jima. That takes a long time. It's a long, it's a long time, tons of loss of life. What's even worth is Okinawa. Okinawa is an island very close to Japan. About 300,000 300, troops are used. Tons of loss of life. It takes three months for the U.S. to secure it. And nobody wants to invade Japan. Because if Japan is fighting so hard on all these little islands, how much more are they going to do that for the main island of Japan? Uh, the U.S. tries to demoralize the Japanese. Uh, something they do is the, the firebombing of Tokyo. You probably have never heard about this. The U.S. starts dropping pretty much napalm on Tokyo. Uh, lots of older parts of Tokyo are mainly built out of wood, and so it burns hard. Huge loss of life here. Humongous loss of life here. Uh, you've probably never heard of it. It's comparable numbers in the Tokyo firebombing to, like, the atomic bombs. Like, it is so many people die with the Tokyo firebombing. It doesn't demoralize the Japanese, though. Now, the most conserved estimates are that it's going to take about a million deaths to secure the island of Japan. There's going to be about a million in casualties for the Americans. That is huge. That is huge numbers that the Americans are not ready and willing to take on yet. But it's looking inescapable. Now what does happen is the atomic bomb. Now the day Truman takes office, he's told that a new bomb test had just happened and maybe it could help. Now this is crazy. Remember, he's just been, he's just, he hasn't been elected president. He's just been appointed president of the United States. You know, FDR is dead. He's probably got some grief, even though he hasn't been vice president for a while. But he's thrust into the position. He knows nothing about the war. And all of a sudden on his first day, he's, like, he's been told, hey, there's a successful bomb. Now he's not told about how strong it is, how powerful it is. But two days after that, two weeks after that, he's told how strong it is. Now the initial plan for the bomb had always been to use it on Berlin. Berlin was always going to be the main use of the bomb they, to demoralize the Nazis and also to scare the crap out of Stalin. Uh, they're afraid that Stalin is getting too big for his britches. Maybe he'll claim too much whenever the war is over. However, plans change. Berlin's defeat, been defeated. Stalin is now theoretically our ally. Also, I need to mention, Stalin is well aware of the bomb. 
Uh, Stalin is upset that the U.S. have been so secretive about it, but uh, we'll get into more about the atomic bomb when we get into the Cold War. Now, Truman gives the order. Truman is told, do you want to drop the bomb on Japan? It's going to kill a lot of people. You're going to have more blood on your hands than pretty much any other president in history. You're going to kill more people in one time than anybody else. Truman thinks about it overnight. He says he doesn't leave any sleepover. He says, yes, it's going to kill a lot of people, but you know what? It's going to save a lot of lives. It's dropped on Hiroshima. If you go over one, okay, after he, after Iwo Jima, you're going to have Tokyo firebombing. One more, that's Hiroshima. Actually, no, that's Nagasaki. My bad. It kills 78,000. When the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima, it kills 78,000. Uh, weirdly enough, including 23 American POWs. Uh, radiation poisoning kills about another 62,000 in the same year. So combined, that's about 140,000 people from one bomb. This demoralizes Japan. But it also gets Russia to finally declare war on Japan. I told you you're going to giggle a little bit whenever Russia declares war on Japan. Uh, another bomb is dropped on Nagasaki, which is a shipbuilding center. It has similar destruction. Uh, the Emperor urges his cabinet to surrender, and they do on August 14th, 1945. August 14th, 1945 is VJ Day. Uh, if you see the conga line on the White House lawn, that is for VJ Day. There's a lot of mirth. A lot of fun things going around, a lot of happiness going on. However, there's some sobering realities that happen at the end of this. Because yes, the war is finally over, but ye gods, does it come at a price? How bad is the price, might I say? Well, the U.S. loses 400,000 people. Soldiers, mainly. Uh, there are about 400,000 soldiers that are killed for the U.S. That's a pretty big number. That's the most people who have died in a war for the U.S. since the Civil War. However, that's nothing compared to some other countries. Uh, Japan loses about 20, sorry, 2.3 million people. 2.3 million soldiers die for Japan. Germany loses 5.6 million people. China loses at least 10 million people. We don't know how many people died in China. I would not be surprised if it's a lot more. Because the, the numbers are pretty hard to come by. The records are so strong. But the one country that I want you to think about during this is Russia. Russia loses 20 million soldiers and 5 million civilians over the course of the war. The U.S. loses 400,000 soldiers and maybe 10,000 civilians. Not too many civilians die in World War II. Remember, so much of the war is fought in Russia. Something like 50 to 75 million people died over the course of the war. We don't know many, how many people died in general. But we do know this is the most deadly war in human history. I, can't, I, I have to keep saying this number. The Russians lost 25 million people over the course of World War II. The U.S. lost 400,000. Now, those numbers sound pretty big. I just want to give you for a ratio, okay? For every one soldier the U.S. lost, for every one death the U.S. lost soldier and civilian, the Russians lost 62.5. The Russians lost 62.5 times the number of people in World War II than America. This resentment, because America dragged its feet for two years, supposedly, according to Stalin, is why there's so much animosity for the Cold War. World War II sets up the Cold War just like World War I sets up World War II. Now, World War II is also the death nail of colonization and imperialism. Pretty much the great imperial powers no longer do this after World War II. It's too expensive. England and France pretty much give up all their colonies. And this is something else that sets up World War II. The fact that all these colonies who had been wanting independence for quite a while now get it so quick, there's a lot of regions that are susceptible for outside pressure from the U.S. and Russia, which is the Cold War. Now, the U.S. is also transformed by this. For the first time in U.S. history, it's an A-tier country. It's the superpower. It's pretty much the main one because Russia is struggling because of how much it lost in the war. It shows that America is now the power for the entire world. It transforms America. The Depression is now over. Uh, 
Completely. America's actually doing better financially than it ever does in its entire existence. Women who've gotten a taste of freedom and having their own paycheck start looking for continued growth. African Americans want more civil rights and start mobilizing for more movements with the younger generation. You would have not have had the civil rights movement had it not been for World War II and the Double V campaign. The other thing that it totally ends for America is isolationism. Isolationism had been the most powerful force in America for most of its history. I'm not going to say it's completely dead, but it's, it's on life support. Russia is looking like a threat, and there's talk about the U.S. doing things all over the world. In addition, the federal government is larger and more authoritative than it had ever been before, as was the president. The president of the United States is now a power on the scale of which he had never been before. The U.S. comes out more powerful, stronger, and more willing to do pretty much anything than at any point in its history. But that, that strength comes supposedly from winning a war, but also by laying so long. And we're going to talk about that when we get into the Cold War, but don't worry about that. What I do want you to worry about is your test. Like I said, for Thursday, you will not be having uh, another lecture. You'll be having a test, so I advise you to do that. Um, make sure you study for it. So anyway, with that, this is Dr. Tully for History. Have a good one.